whether it is the invasion of Ukraine, whether it is COVID restrictions in China, every single one of those policy actions, physical actions has global ramifications, not just for the global economy, but for uh, on the ground individual business owners who are trying to manage through that lack of clarity. Excellence, professionalism, innovation, and collegiality. These are the values the Sam and Walton College of Business explores in education, business, and the lives of people we meet every day. I'm Matt Waller, Dean of the Walton College, and welcome to the Be Epic podcast. I have with me today Michael Brown, who's principal U.S. economist at Visa. And Michael received his undergraduate degree from the Walton College and his Master's of Arts degree in economics from the Walton College. And he is currently on my executive advisory board. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. Great to be here, man. So, Michael, um, you've really been in economics your whole career and you studied economics as a student. Would you mind just sharing a little bit about how you got interested in economics? Sure. Um, you know, I guess it all started as an undergraduate at the Walton College. You know, I was uh, taking, I believe, the uh, intermediate level uh, courses. And um, it was really micro uh, that was fascinating to me. So the application of mathematics to business problems was intriguing to me. And I kind of stayed down that path. Uh, for a while, uh, partnered with a professor at the time by the name of Terry Deck, uh, who was a, a very inspirational person in, in my career track. And Terry was adamant that the research really helped us understand business problems in an applied uh, sense. And Terry uh, was an experimental and behavioral economist, and that was also quite fascinating. I have a minor in psychology also uh, from the University of Arkansas there in uh, blending those two passions, I thought, was a, a natural intersection uh, to do micro. Michael, of course, uh, I've heard your presentations, and I followed, I followed your career, and it's really impressive, uh, the knowledge you've gained. Of course, you've been with Visa for almost five years, and prior to that, you were vice president and economist at uh, Wells Fargo for over eight years, and um, you've had other experiences as well, but would you mind telling us a little bit about what you do as principal U.S. economist for Visa? Sure. Uh, well, it's a far cry from that micro uh, undergrad student that I described to you just a moment ago. Um, you know, the reality is I spend a lot of my time focused on developments in the macro economy. There is some behavioral aspects of what we do in terms of understanding shifts in consumer confidence and psychology and how that may impact consumption patterns. But more broadly, if I had to divide up uh, kind of my time into a pie chart, if you will, I'm an economist, I love charts, right? So, um, you know, you, you divide the time up, I'd say about 70% of my time is focused on interfacing with our clients and communicating the work that's done here in the office by our incredibly talented team of analysts, economists, and data scientists, distilling that down into an easily digestible format for CEOs, CFOs, and senior leaders across our, our clients, which include banks, uh, large merchants, 
Um, you know, there's fintechs are, are kind of in the fold and big tech companies today uh, as they're starting to wade into the payments ecosystem. So um, a lot of what I do is information distilling and presentation. Still have the hard skills, though. Uh, you know, uh, just this morning we were designing a, a new round of forecast models. So still heavily involved in econometric uh, design as well as, uh, you know, we do some academic uh, work here as well to keep us fresh on uh, some of the new and in, in innovative techniques out there in both uh, economic forecasting, but also uh, sort of pushing the envelope with uh, broader economic research topics. Well, I could imagine that uh, it's probably hard to find people that fit into your profile because a lot of times people that are real strong in econometrics uh, tend to be, um, you know, focused on math and uh, maybe more introverted. Clearly, one of your strengths is communication, but also that synthesis skill. Anytime you've got a lot of different analyses, especially when they may be pointing in different directions, trying to synthesize it in a way that people can understand and relate to and then make decisions upon isn't easy. How did you learn to do the synthesis and communication pieces? That just came with with experience. You know, my first job out of graduate school was actually at the Arkansas General Assembly, and I served as kind of a policy analyst and, you know, very research focused from the beginning. But then, you know, you you complete a research project and then you're often called upon to testify in a committee or, you know, in front of, uh, you know, other members of, of the legislature. And that was when I learn fairly quickly that, you know, distilling things down to their constituent components and then trying to communicate just the essentials, um, what was sort of core to it. So that was really an enlightening experience having to take a often 40, 50 page research document, distill it down into 10, 15 minutes of testimony. Just going through that process was, uh, very, very challenging at first. I'll admit when I moved to Wells Fargo, um, the story changed, right? It was all about, we have a literally like telling a story of the economy and its facets and its developments and its nuances and turning points, and then trying to convey that in not just an informative way, but frankly, in a way that's going to connect with the audience that you're in front of. So for example, you know, if you're talking to a hedge fund, you can be a little more technical and a little more rigorous. If you're talking to CFOs of middle market clients, mid-sized companies, that takes a different approach. So that's when the skill set of adapting communication styles came into it. And now it's more a function of, okay, now we're we're speaking mostly to to CEOs and CFOs. You kind of have a boilerplate that you can navigate. Well, I know you've done a lot of forecasting of the U.S. economy, and that's so hard to do. Would you talk a little bit about methods of forecasting the U.S. economy and also the challenges and trade-offs associated with short-term versus medium-term versus long-term? All all phenomenal uh, questions. So the first comment I would say is you need to be as humble as you possibly can be (laughs) to be an economic (laughs) forecaster, Uh, particularly in in today's environment. if you think you're going to be right the majority of the time, you are you are mistaking yourself. 
And, and, and I learned this long ago, right? I mean, when, when I first started forecasting at my time at Wells Fargo, the most important aspect of doing it is coming up with a consistent storyline around what the data supports. And, you know, the numbers that we come out of our models, we're, we're often kind of ad factoring to make sure that that consistency is there in the message and in the storyline. Uh, a macro forecast ranges anywhere between five to 32 line items. We're forecasting about 32 here at, at Visa currently. And those line items should all move consistent with that fabric of a story that you're telling. And sometimes the models aren't great at doing that. Uh, as hard as you try as a as an, a good econometrician, they're not always consistent, particularly in a post-COVID environment as we're in and trying to navigate now. So one, be humble. Two, ground it in the macro theory. If you're not driven by the known principles and relationships that frankly, are our guiding principles. It's the reason we're economists and not data scientists, is we're using that framework of macro theory to guide our thinking around that storyline development, and then finally communicating it in a clear and concise manner that uh, you know has its footnotes attached, as I like to say, but you're still uh, you know accentuating it with, with just the key. Well, you know, when you talk about all these different items you're forecasting what are what are some of them you're you're forecasting and which ones are the most challenging well so the top line i mean the biggest thing everyone looks at is us gdp growth right so we we don't even refer to it as gdp when we're talking to clients we just say economic growth you know again we're trying to get out of the the realm of uh, you know teaching undergrad econ as part of our uh, updates to our executives certainly inflation um, here at Visa, a big part of our business is obviously consumer spending. So, for example, we look at both real spending, which tells us how much foot traffic they go through our merchants, but we also look at nominal spending, which is going to correspond with revenues. So, again, taking you know the the inflation piece, adding it to the real or inflation adjusted variables, all of these are kind of key inputs into uh, not just our business but our clients' business as well. The great thing about our business model here at Visa is when our clients do well, we do well as also. So, you know, it's 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 kind of interesting to uh, come in and provide these additional perspectives. Now, the hard part, I would say, um, you know, interest rates are up there uh, with some of the more difficult line items to kind of forecast. Um, oil prices, um, oftentimes I, I will consult a Ouija board rather than a forecast model. I mean, it is really difficult um, to, to kind of forecast it. And in the third bucket, I would say is anything that would involve political calculations versus economic fundamentals. So, for example, you know, the, the hot topic these days is the federal budget and, of course, debt ceiling debates. That is inherently a political decision. And I learned a long time ago, let's stick to the economics. We'll let the political forecasting to the political scientists because uh, it gets really tricky very quickly to try to figure out the direction of those kinds of variables. Your point about, you know, trying to come up with a story that weaves everything together where the forecasts of each of the lines make sense together. Um, because you would expect certain things to react 
in certain ways um, under certain circumstances based on theory. But that gets into something really interesting, which is the short run versus the long run. Because even if your story's right, because of the stochastic nature of the variables, the short-term forecast could just have some noise in them that make the make it inconsistent with the story. You're absolutely right. I mean, you know, we actually divide our time up. Usually the mornings of our day are really focused on those short-term macro fluctuations. And for better or worse, the bulk of our client base is really keyed in and dialed into that short-run view. That said, your eye isn't on the long-run ball. Uh, so you're going to miss a lot. And so the afternoons here are really us jumping into our huddle rooms or our little side chat rooms and kicking around these longer run themes. We spend a lot of time talking about the implications of Gen Z on productivity growth and technological adoption. You know, the trends that are going to shift across demographic groups, but also what a large and growing retirement base means for the potential GDP growth of the U.S. And all of these things, if you're doing any kind of medium to long run planning, are essential to kind of inform clients of as well. So uh, it's not just demographics. I mean, we go back to, again to macro principles, right? We're talking about productivity growth, technology or you know labor augmenting technology in that production function. And then capital flows globally, and all of that feeds into kind of our medium to long run perspective, but it's all grounded in those simple production functions that we all learned, you know, as undergrad and grad students. Michael, there's economists in a lot of different industries. I would think you have a little bit of an advantage because any economist has access to archival data. You also have access to payment and data. We do. I, I mean, you know, in terms of our, our payment volumes, we roughly see close to 25 cents of every dollar spent here in the United States. And uh, that's about, uh, you know, somewhere around 21 to 22 cents globally. So it's uh, it, it's a fairly large penetration rate. And it does allow us to get a, a pretty high degree of visibility into the consumer side. But, you know, we also have small business cards and commercial cards as well. So we are able to gather intelligence on multiple facets of the U.S. economy through the lens of, of our card payment data. But I would say that there's also challenges with that. Um, you know, I mean, I'm sure your students are learning about uh, big data there at the Walton College in, in excruciating detail. It has a tremendous amount of noise associated with it. And as an economist, uh, you know, it's a little funny to say working for a business, but there's a lot of what I call business noise in our big data. So I'll give you an example. Let's say we have a, a bank that was issuing a competitor's uh, product and they convert to issuing Visa. Well, that was economic activity that was going on before we could see that in our big data set. And we've got to, to figure out ways, creative ways that control for that. Um, and we've got folks migrating in and out of our ecosystem daily, right? So it, it would be impossible to trace down every single inbound and outbound kind of transaction uh, when, when we're talking, you know, millions and millions a day. 
So um, we, we've come up with clever ways, thanks to our talented data scientists, to kind of scrub the big data and extract what I call the economic signal from, from the big data and make it a useful economic measure. So yes, there are a lot of advantages, but there's also a tremendous amount of sort of data cleaning. And then it then there's then there's the uh, sort of balance issue that we're always struggling with as particularly in our profession as applied business economists, because you're right, we have a lot of insider information. And as a publicly traded company, we have to protect a lot of that information. I would love nothing more than to, to start publishing forecasts based off of what I saw two days ago in our transactions data. But that would end up front running our forward guidance, our executive team, our financials. So there's a business ethics angle to this as well that we have to be very, very cognizant of uh, with that big data. We also have a big level of responsibility to protect the confidentiality of some of that data as well. I know that under your leadership, Bloomberg News ranked Visa's U.S. economics team as among the top forecasters uh, of the U.S. economy. How how did you lead your team uh, to that achievement? What what did you have to do? First, you know, I'll just kind of walk you through how we onboard our, our economists here. And phase one is really the indoctrination of our approach to econometrics and basically um, uh, systems thinking. For me to think about the economy as a system and what are what are the, the things that could break the system? What are the things that could make the system run faster? What are the levers we could pull to, to uh, perhaps make the system run more efficiently? So you start thinking of it as a system and we basically, uh, to de-nerd it a little bit, as I like to say, we basically apply that thought process to our, our econometric structures and models. So we have, uh, we, we use machine learning techniques such as Bayesian vector autoregressions and uh, other types of uh, applied techniques as well that will take both public and proprietary economic data that we subscribe to, feed that through our systems of equations, and that helps us understand the code movements between things. But again, we also have a lot of experience um, here. I mean, you know, I've got a, a team with uh, close to 90 years of combined experience, uh, you know, forecasting and understanding the economy. And that's invaluable, having folks that have lived through different types of recessions, have seen data develop in different ways. Um, and probably the, the, the death kill of an economist is have seen the magnitudes of the revisions that can come with some of the data that we rely on heavily to find turning points in the economy. And all of that just kind of gels. I think probably the most um, rewarding moment of, of my months is sitting in a forecast meeting, which we have the first Friday of every month after the non-farm payroll report comes out. Um, and we sit there and, and everybody goes around the room and, um, and, and they they talk about what, what they think is right, what they think is wrong. And there is no hierarchy in that room. Everyone's idea matters. Everyone's thought matters. Everyone's research matters when it comes to that. And creating that flat structure in that one meeting that sets the tone for what we're gonna say for the next 30 to 60 days is is incredibly important as a leader to make sure that you're creating that inclusive environment of free flow of ideas, particularly 
in a research function like we serve. Um, so just setting up the environment and setting um, the team up for success in their uh, endeavors as, a, as an applied econometrician as well. So you must have had to build a lot of trust to get that to happen. Because um, it's easy to say, but when you get that many people into a room, it's a, there's a lot of complicated sociological and political issues that go into it. So um, how, how did you build the trust? Well, so one of the uh, sort of foundations of my management style is I really am important. I, I really place a lot of emphasis on one-on-one -on -one conversations. So every single week, whether I'm traveling or not, it, it may be 15 minutes that week or sometimes it's an hour, but I'm sitting down with each member of the team and understanding what's working, what's not working, um, helping them set priorities and knowing that I have their back when they can't get to priority number five on that list um, is also an important aspect of kind of managing uh, workflow. And I think probably another dimension to it is really listening more than you're talking. You know, those one-on-one -on -one conversations, if I leave the room feeling like I spoke more than 30% of the time, I think I, I walk away saying I, I probably did something wrong and I need to, to kind of reassess and reevaluate my approach the next time. Well, congratulations on your terrific achievement there. One shifting gears just a little bit. Um, you know, throughout history, there are these shocks that occur um, to economies. I, uh, the biggest one, of course, COVID, that's the most memorable, had an incredible impact in so many different ways. It's hard to even conceive of all these changes. And, you know, you could think, and we would be, we have to bring up generative AI but I, I wonder, is generative AI a shock? That I mean, maybe we're not seeing it yet, but I know um, I, I, I know so many uh, alumni in various industries that are telling me really innovative ways that they're using it. But even in the university, we're finding ways of using it that are quite remarkable, that truly make us more efficient. But what are your thoughts? Do you think... Do you think this is going to be a shock? A shock might be a little strong of a word. Um, I, I, as an economist, I go back to first principles, and I think the power of what you described is really the augmentation of labor. And if you think about the long-run trends here in the U.S., we're, we're in a country with an aging population, slow net in migration, slow year-on-year -year population growth. The key story in macroeconomics today is the high rates of inflation. So how do you bring that down? Well, in light of not being able to grow your labor force, you bring that down through enhancing your existing labor force. And so I, I, I'm kind of a, a glass has, have full kind of guy on this because I think the power to enhance the abilities of the human capital that we have in this country and others around the world I think it's going to be an unlock of potentially higher GDP growth than we otherwise would have had in the absence of this kind of innovation and technology. Now, that said, I don't think we're ready to just run full steam ahead. I'll just give you the example here at Visa. It is prohibited 
on our systems to use chat GPT or other generative AI tools. And the reason is that the fear of putting in something that is company proprietary into that ecosystem and having it uploaded into a, a public database for other future consumption, uh, maybe to answer other questions out there, um, that risk of intellectual property seepage or loss is really high. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, the World Wide Web was similar. When it was created, many companies banned it because you know, it was so easy for information to flow outside through the World Wide Web. So, Michael, it's funny, prior to the pandemic, no one, very few people knew what supply chain management was, and logistics was a term they didn't really use much. And during the pandemic, it was on the front page every day, and now people know about it. It's amazing. And, of course, as you know, our undergraduate program in supply chain is now ranked number one in North America by Gartner, and the master's program is ranked number two in North America by Gartner, which we're very grateful for. But would you mind speaking a little bit to supply chain and the macro picture of the economy? Well, it's interesting. I'll, I'll take you back to one of my trips to Southern California. I was flying from San Diego back here to the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, this was early in uh, 2021, so February, March kind of time frame. And I remember flying over the port of Long Beach, looking at all the vessels lined up. And uh, that was the clearest visual representation of the public economic data. And what I would say is, you know, it was incredible the amount of tug and pull on U.S. GDP growth that we saw from the collapse of inventory, the rebuilding of inventory. Um, you know, I rarely talk about uh, an esoteric concept we call real final sales to private domestic purchasers. Essentially, it's core GDP growth, right? How are consumers, businesses, and governments spending and investing? But I had to talk about that measure because the inventory cycle was so inconsistent with core demand in the economy. They were so out of sync for so long that you it was sending false signals about the strength or weakness of the economy, depending on the quarter. So that was an incredible time where, uh, one, we learned just how globally interconnected the world is and how when we're doing better and everybody else is doing better, it uplifts us all because uh, whether it is the invasion of Ukraine, whether it is COVID restrictions in China, every single one of those policy actions, physical actions has global ramifications, not just for the global economy, but for uh, on the ground individual business owners who are trying to manage through that lack of clarity. So um, I think this scarring of what we went through with supply chain is going to be with us for a while. And it's going to have some very important implications uh, for business management going forward. Michael, I know you've done extensive research on uh, cons the consumer side of the economy. Would you mind talking a little bit about some of the medium to long run trends that you're seeing on the consumer side? Well, I think there's probably two broad buckets. One is kind of the demographic shifts. And right now we're in this phase where uh, boomers are kind of moving into their retirement years. They're 
leaving the the labor force, um, frankly, post-pandemic a little bit earlier than we had anticipated. And that starts having some profound impacts on aggregate consumption. And I'll give you one example. In economics and macro, we we talk a little bit about uh, this concept of the wealth effect. So as one's value of of, of their home or uh, their, their stock portfolio rises, there is some knock-on effect on aggregate consumption. And historically, you know, if you look at the, the economic literature, it's been range-bound. I mean, depending on the studies you look at, it's between $0.05 cents and $0.10, cents, meaning that for every dollar of wealth that increases, you tend to spend about $0.05 cents or $0.10. Cents. Now, some of this is psychological, right? I feel better about my financial situation, and therefore I can go out and spend a little bit more. But what we're seeing is this wealth effect, as we measure it, has now grown to roughly around 34 cents. So it's a profound shift wow. and deviation from what we've seen over the last decade and a half. And the reason that's so important is because you start putting the pieces together. We accumulated a tremendous amount of housing and financial wealth over the last five years as an economy. The second key aspect is we are much more sensitive to changes in stock markets today than we were, say, 20 years ago. The third piece, as I mentioned, is you look at the share of the population over the age of 55 who has retired early. Um, It's incredible post-pandemic. And so it makes some sense that this wealth effect and wealth accumulation is having some impact as well. So that's a, a big trend that we're looking at over the next five years as the retirements continue to accelerate in the coming years. And so I think what we're about to see over the next 10 years is the evolution of working at just a tech company to that permeating multiple other sectors of the economy. And you're already seeing this in financial services with automated trading and trying to enhance productivity in that that, uh, sector. And I think, you know, we're just now seeing the tip of the iceberg as this tech stack moves from Silicon Valley, as I like to say, out to the rest of the country uh, to kind of permeate some of these industries. And that enables purchasing power of consumers um, in a whole new way and in new markets that I think we're just now starting to get a handle on. Well, Michael, this has been really interesting. Congratulations on your tremendous success in your career and uh, for taking time to visit with me about this. I really appreciate it. It's been fun, Matt. Always great chatting with you and uh, very, very pleased to always support the Walton College here as well. On behalf of the Sam M. Walton College of Business, I want to thank everyone for spending time with us for another engaging conversation. You can subscribe by going to your favorite podcast service and searching Be Epic, B-E-E-P-I-C. 